Welcome to the 69th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg of Blue Frontier with my co-host, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein of the Inland Ocean Coalition. And hello, everyone. Today, we're pleased to be speaking with Alexandra Morton, sometimes referred to as the Jane Goodall of Canada, a specialist in orca vocalizations and language. She moved from California to the remote coast of British Columbia in 1984. Years later, seeing the impact of declining wild salmon on resident orcas, she began investigating the industrial salmon farms that were spreading across the region and their impact on the wild fish. This began a decades-long effort to get the government to halt the damage. Along with her research, lawsuits, and a 280-day occupation of the salmon farms by indigenous First Nation people she worked with, she's also written a book, Not On My Watch, and is a subject of an upcoming documentary, Big Salmon. But before we get into all that, Alexandra, let me ask when in your early life you first made your connection to the sea. You know, I was born uh, in the Berkshire Mountains of Connecticut, uh, which was a very lovely bucolic place to grow up, but uh, had nothing to do with the ocean. And the connection that I made was because I decided uh, as a girl that I wanted to study communication in a large brain non-human. And that was so I had the choice between the primates, elephants and cetaceans, the dolphins. And I picked dolphins. And of course, they're in the water. And uh, I started with dolphins in tanks in Los Angeles. And the killer whales there gave birth for the first time in, you know, ever. And so I I began listening. I put the hydrophones down in the killer whale tank and I, I just fell in love with them. And eventually I went to find their family felt very badly leaving them behind, but I found their family in British Columbia so that I could study the same dialect. And I took one sniff of British Columbia and I recognized that it was my habitat and I've lived here ever since. Now you you said dialect. I I think people are not aware, or maybe a few people are becoming aware that orcas, what we used to call killer whales, not only have distinct family cultures, matriarchies and cultures, but distinct sounds and dialects. And maybe you could say something about that. Yes, it's quite extraordinary. So there's, you know, different groups of orca, like we have our fish eating whales, and we have our uh, mammal eating orca, they speak completely different languages, they don't mingle. And then within the fish eating whales, the families each speak a slightly different dialect. So the less related they are, the the bigger the difference in their calls. I think they can understand each other because they form groups that are often uh, mixed dialects, but it's still a mystery as to why why they each have a slightly different language. And um, I specialize in the A5 clan of the Northern residents and been studying their sounds since 1978. Do the young whales like humans have different sounds or tones like our kids do in uh, in our language? They do. I was able to document a couple of births and yeah, they just had this little cry. But very quickly, they pick up their language. And there was a remarkable situation where uh, a young whale and her mother got separated and the mother died. And the little whale began to follow a ferry in Washington state. And of course, people realized this whale was an orphan. They were able to track her to what family she belonged to, and they brought her back. And this was a really big uh, event for her family. And when she first heard them, she started basically screaming. And then they went quiet. And she was only a few years old. 
but she let loose this beautiful stream of calls that I, I felt was like, you know, I am from this pod. My mother is, we are Northern residents. <laughs> it was so, so she did know her language uh, at a very young age. Oh, that just gave me chills. That's amazing. Yeah. And so the common dialects, I mean, common language, you know, a New Yorker can get along with the South Carolinian and, and understand, but entirely different, uh, the pelagic orcas, the ones that are going after uh, whales and, and seals. They're actually speaking, they would have a communications problem uh, if they show up in a harbor where there are fish eating orca. Uh, they have more than a communication problem. They don't mingle at all. Uh, it's it's very interesting. I mean, they are the same species, but they are genetically very diverse. Orcas have culture, as you mentioned at the beginning, and they basically have tribes. And there's tribes that get along and there's tribes that don't mingle at all. And a lot of this is based on diet and geographic location. So, yeah, it's a really good question as to whether these really different populations understand each other. I I suspect not, but that's really just a guess. Uh, we don't really know. So you came up in the early 80s to British Columbia to really study these top ocean predators and not so much their prey, the wild salmon of, of the Northwest, but what happened where, where you began to shift your focus? Well, the first thing I did was I looked for a place to do a basically lifetime study. I was modeling my work after Dr. Jane Goodall's work, where you just move into the territory of the animal and you really get to know their environment and them. And so for me, I followed a group of orca into this place called the Broughton Archipelago. It's, uh, it's very remote. There's no, there's no roads. You can't drive out of there. There's no ferries. There's no electricity. But there was this tiny little community called Echo Bay where most people were living in houses that were sitting on uh, a raft of logs. They're called float houses. And it was just perfect. It was quiet, calm waters. Clearly the whales were there because they, I followed them there. And there was a little one room school, which was important because my husband and I at that point had a little uh, two year old and it was so perfect. And so as a girl, I read every book about people that went into the wilderness to study animals. And I noticed that every single book was in three parts. And the first part was basically, oh, wow, wow, everything. The, the secrets that you learn from these creatures when you live in their environment and you follow them, for example, in the middle of winter, which nobody had done with orca on this coast and the environment and the whole experience of living there. And the second part of these books is always, uh-oh, <laughs> all of this is about to be destroyed by something we're doing. And, and then the third part of the book is always these, these poor biologists trying to figure out how to fix this. And I was absolutely determined to stay in part one of my book, my life. But when the salmon farming industry moved in, so these are large, like football field size pen structures with nets hanging down with 600,000 to a million Atlantic salmon, even though this is the Pacific, I thought they were a good idea. I thought they would bring more people to my little community. 
I thought that it might be a good idea for people to eat fish in a pen rather than fish in the wild. But my neighbors, my fishermen neighbors came to me and they said, look, they're putting these things in all the wrong places. They're putting them in the places where the wild fish were, which I began eventually to learn that these were the vital organs of the archipelago where the upwellings occurred and the tide lines were and the water was cool. And so they asked me to write letters to the government of Canada, and I did that. And the government basically said, there is no problem. You can ignore this. Just go back to whatever you were doing. Well, I knew that wasn't true. And so I wrote them again. And over the years, I wrote over 10,000 pages of letters. We had this tiny little post office with a seaplane that brought the mail. And the postmistress said I actually kept the post office open for a while because of the massive correspondence I had, like this was pre-email, with government. And uh, by then I was seeing the the impacts myself. I saw toxic algae blooms. I saw Atlantic salmon in the rivers. And then I saw the orcas I was working with get displaced by these farms because they they began to, to play these very loud sounds, 198 decibels, which is as loud as a jet airplane at takeoff right at the engine. And they did this to try to keep the seals from attacking the fish that were in the pens. But it was the orca that left. And the first time I saw this, the whales were swimming along with their heads out of the water at like a 45 degree angle. And I was like, well, what are they looking at? <laughs> That's, I thought they had their eyes above the water that they were looking at something. And I was really confused. And then I threw my underwater microphone over the side of the boat and turned on the tape recorder. And oh my gosh, the needles on the tape recorder just slammed into the red zone, stayed there. And there was this loud, it was like a cricket noise, but it was just absolutely blasting. So these weren't just seal bombs that they were throwing. This was a constant noise that the industry was making. That's right. There was a company making these things called Airmar. And uh, yeah, it was a very loud sound designed specifically to the hearing range of the seals to cause pain. And, 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 you know, in some ways you could say, okay, well, that was better than shooting them. But the whales, you know, whales depend on sound to see. And so I think it was like walking into a room with needles coming at your eyes. You would not go back in that room. And that's what these whales did. They did not come back month after month after year after decade. The mammal-eating whales, the transient orca or bigs orca as we call them now, they did eventually come back and they were very crafty in how they did it. They put an island between themselves and these farms. And so they completely changed their travel route. And the reason I really did notice this was because I lived on the new travel route where I'd never seen them before. And now they became common. But the fish eating whales, the residents, they didn't want to change their path. They were on the salmon highway and that's where the farms were. And so they got displaced. And it was a long time for me to figure out how to, yeah, what do you do about this? I'm so curious because you're living there, you're seeing the impact of the whales, you know that these large pens are here with non-native fish. When did you start getting concerned 
about the health of the salmon, both in the pens and then also the salmon that were living nearby or transiting through these regions? Well, the first time was in the early 90s when um, I was a volunteer at the local hatchery where we were trying to enhance coho. I don't, I don't think hatcheries are a good idea anymore, but I did at the time. And the salmon farms got a disease called furunculosis and bang, we got it in the hatchery and lost 80% of the brood stock, which had never happened before. The government gave us a drug and we had to inject every single fish with oxytetracycline, an antibiotic, and they got better. But then two years later, it happened again but now the bacteria was drug resistant and we couldn't stop it. And then in 2001, there was massive numbers of young salmon floundering around on the surface. So these are little fish that have just left the river and they're trying to head out to the ocean and they were covered with sea lice. Sea lice are natural, but they're breeding rapidly on the farms. And so the little fish come by and they get infected and that, you know, when that happened, I was like, okay, I'm just going to drop everything. I turned my home into a research station. I learned how to study sea lice. I've been studying sea lice ever since. Honestly, <laughs> I don't want to know anything more about sea lice. It needed to be done. So it's the sea lice, it's the uh, antibiotic resistance that's growing around these, these uh, salmon farms. It's the impact of the farm salmon on the wild salmon. Where has the resident orcas that you went up there to study, where did they go? They just don't go into that area. They, they've poked their heads in a few times, but um, they're very nearby in an area called Johnson Straits, Blackfish Sound. It's right alongside the archipelago, but uh, they were very precise. Like orca are very precise in everything they do. And so, for example, they came for the Chinook salmon that came in the spring, and then they came for the pink salmon in uh, late July and early August, and then they came again, a different family came for the chum salmon that come in in the fall. And they like to come into the archipelago at the beginning of an ebb tide, so they're swimming against the tide. It's like a wolf hunting downwind, I guess they can taste their, their prey ahead of them. And uh, I worry that this knowledge has been lost over the decades because they were displaced in 1995. <laughs> wow. And, um, you know, it's been very, very sparse usage since. Are you saying there's no responsibility for the water quality or the health of the salmon within the BC region? No, there are rules. Right. Yeah, no. <laughs> there are rules. And when this whole thing started, the, the uh, fish farm industry was being regulated by the provincial government like the state, the province, mm -hmm. that was actually illegal, unlawful, because if salmon farms are in a federal jurisdiction, they're in the ocean. So I went to court and I straightened that out and I got the uh, regulation of the industry handed over to the federal government, but they did no better. And I can't, I can only say it's been a cover up. Mm -hmm. um, I, in the book that I wrote recently, Not On My Watch, I put down, I included a lot of internal documents. So in Canada, there's this wonderful Access to Information Act, and it's online, and you can request the conversation between government staff on a certain subject on a certain, between two dates. And so I found out, for example, that 
while scientists were publishing that this virus PRV was harmless and local, they had actually sent the virus to a laboratory in Norway. And the Norwegian scientists said, no, your virus is definitely causing disease. And yet that never came out. I'm still trying to get that information out. I mean, the government scientists in Canada went on to publish papers that insisted that this virus doesn't cause disease, doesn't cause any lesions in the fish. But the Norwegian scientist is saying the opposite. It's the same with sea lice. They say, oh, we don't really know where the sea lice are coming from. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, it's pretty obvious they're coming from the farms because the fish are fine, the wild fish are fine until they go by the farms and then boom, they get covered with lice. This is a problem everywhere in the world. And then there's a bacteria that causes mouth rot and it's infecting the majority of wild salmon that are passing farms. It's so obvious. This is the problem I think that we face. It's not just obviously in Canada, but when government has a policy, when they decide that something is going to happen, that an industry is going to happen, it is incredibly hard, possibly Im impossible to reverse that policy. It's, it's very, very dangerous. We're dealing with this with climate change right now on a planetary scale. And it's very hard to know how to go at it. First, what's interesting, you say the way to overcome frustration and anger is through activism, that you you committed now over 30 years to working on this issue, but getting a lot of resistance from government agencies. How is it that the state of Alaska could ban salmon farms, but British Columbia and even the federal government in Canada would not? Well, Alaskan fishermen are very proactive. They're very protective of their fishery, of the wild salmon. And they just don't take any nonsense. They just said no right from the beginning. And I don't know whether they did it because they knew how bad it was or whether they did it because they just didn't want this farm salmon uh, competing with their market. But the fish farm companies continue to try to get into Alaska. It has the perfect coast with all the, those little islands down in southeast Alaska. But they just never let it in the door, whereas Canada just swung the door wide open, even though there were warnings. It was so interesting. A member of the Norwegian government came to Canada in 1991. John Littenham was his name. And he testified in front of the Canadian Senate. And he said, in Norway, the, the fish farmers said we wanted to get big. And we said, no. And they said, we'll go to Canada. We can do as we like. And then he said, this is a very hot subject, I think. So he came and he warned Canadian politicians, but they ignored it. And I don't know, you know, whether there's some relationship between this, the industry here is entirely Norwegian. I, I don't know whether uh, there's some something, you know, did Canada borrow money from Norway or what? It's it's it, the, the pressure that is causing this to happen is something I can't see and never have been able to see. And all I'm dealing with is the symptom, the upfront problem. And uh, it's it's very, very difficult. I wrote letters and I did science then I used the court. And then I switched to activism and I did two 
led two massive marches. One was down uh, uh, Vancouver Island, which is 300 kilometers. So it took about a week and we had 5,000 people at the end. And then we did another action where we took 10 big canoes down a portion of the Fraser River, which has the biggest wild salmon run in the world. And there was 100 people in these canoes. And we, we, we got closer and closer to Vancouver over a period of a week. And then we arrived at the beginning of this commission into why the Fraser salmon were disappearing. Those didn't work, but the occupation of the salmon farms that I participated with, with local First Nations was extraordinary. And it, that's the reason I wrote the book is because when you do that, when you just take a stand, you just get in the way, but you're peaceful, honorable you you very you know very clear on why you're doing this it's not an act of anger or vandalism or threatening it's just peaceful but you don't stop well the lesson for me is that works in this case so when was that occupation of of the salmon farms by the first nation indigenous folks and and how did that go how did that come off and what came of it well, it was such an interesting chain of events. And it, you know, I'd been in this fight with with First Nations. The First Nations knew how bad this problem is. But Paul Watson of Sea Shepherd uh, put a message up on Facebook one day in 2017. And he said, I'm sending a boat to help Alexandra Morton in her fight with fish farms. Well, I was shocked. And I asked him to take that down because I, I wasn't ready for that. Well, he didn't take it down. And I thought about it for a while. And then I thought, you know what? Okay, let's try this. So (laughs) I contacted First Nations. I said, we have this beautiful sailing ship coming. And do you want to use this boat? Do you want to come aboard and and use it to get your message across to a larger audience that you don't want these salmon farms here? And they agreed. And one remarkable chief joined us, um, Chief George Kwok's sister, Junior. And he went up to a fish farm that had all these little things happening on the surface that looked like rain. And because he was a commercial fisherman, he knew that was herring in the farms, wild herring in an Atlantic salmon farm. And he called out across the water to the fish farmer. He said, what, what are those fish in your pens? And the guy did not skip a beat. He said, there's no fish in that pen. Well, that, 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 that one thing caused the whole industry to unravel because George, it took him a couple hours to get up the courage, but he put on his regalia. We gave him a GoPro camera on a pole and he went and he stuck the GoPro in and yep, it was a lot of herring. And, and some deformed fish because I saw those photographs. Yes. Well, and the herring was coming from where? Were the was the industry feeding them to their fish illegally, or were they coming in on their own? The herring, I believe, were attracted to the food that they pour in. It's a very greasy, very you know, smelly food, and I think the herring were attracted to it, and so they went into the pens as small fish. And then this this pen had been harvested. The Atlantic salmon had been all taken out, but the herring were still there. Um, and we don't know what happened to them. I still don't know what happens to the millions of herring that get into these farms. The herring are the 
basis of the food chain here for the humpback whales, for the wild salmon, for so many species, there's very strict rules about when you can fish them and how many you can take and what kind of gear you can use. And yet the salmon farms are loaded with them. But then George went on to every single farm along Eastern Vancouver Island. And yes, he got these pictures of deformed fish, of fish with huge sores. And we put together a video and took it to the villages so they could finally see what was going on in these farms, in their territories. And there was this meeting finally after months of this about what to do next. And a young hereditary chief, Ernest Alfred, stood up after about an hour and he just said, I don't know what the rest of you are going to do, but I'm going to occupy the Swanson Island salmon farm until it's gone. This guy was a kindergarten teacher. And off he went and he did that and others followed. And we put solar panels on the farms. We built structures on the farms. Lots of uh, indigenous young women began occupying the farms. And what's the timeline for this, this occupation? It started in the summer of 2017 and it went all through the winter, Mm -hmm. which was really cold and awful and scary because these are floating things. And anyway, by the spring of 2018, the fish farm companies got an injunction and, and got rid of us. So First Nation chiefs knew that salmon farms were a problem because they were killing the wild salmon. They had almost no wild salmon left in their territories. But when the occupation happened, this issue rose to the top of their to-do list. There's so many things they have to deal with. But this rose to the top and they went into confidential negotiations with the government. It was a very difficult time for all of us who had been occupying the farms because we weren't allowed to know. We were so afraid they were going to cave in, but they didn't. And in the end, the province of British Columbia, the federal government of Canada and the Norwegian companies all signed an agreement that a few farms would be taken out every single year. And that's where we are right now. We're in the middle of that process. Many of the farms have been taken out and we're seeing extraordinary rebounds of the salmon. For example, this one river, which I love deeply, it's called the Otta River. It, it's had up to 50, 60,000 fish, pink salmon come back to it. But it got down to about 300 adult pink salmon and when their kids went to sea, the farms had been removed and over 11,000 came back. <laughs> Nobody knew salmon could do that kind of rebound in one generation, but they did. And um, so they're all tucked into the river right now. We're so happy that it's raining because they've spawned. Their little babies are in that gravel and they're going to go to sea safe from the viruses, the bacteria, the sea lice, from these industrial marine feedlots. Uh, So we're very hopeful that they will continue to increase. So let me ask you this. You've done the science and the law and the activism. You've had 
success, a, a level of success in getting the farms out of your part of the wild ocean. Are you looking forward to getting back with uh, talking to and listening to your your orcas, your whales, or what's what's your future plans now? Oh, I really am. Um, in fact, I had decided I was quitting this this fight in June because the minister made a good decision. She only gave two-year licenses to the remaining farms. Sadly, now she's going backwards. But um, And so now I've, I am putting more time back into it. But yes, I'm doing two things. One is I'm I'm talking to all my colleagues that continue to work with whales and trying to bring myself up to speed as to where we came, you know, where we got to. I, I really wish I'd been able to spend these years pursuing my research on their language because they're really, there were some vocalizations that were so fascinating, like this one vocal, it happened when they gave birth, it happens when they start a conversation, but it also happened when they all turned around in the wild, like they're going in one direction and then they make a decision to go a different direction. And I thought about this and I thought about it, I was like, okay, what is the same of all these three really different uh, behavioral states? And I, I, I think it has to do with uh, a moment of synchronization when the whole group is doing one thing, they're deciding to turn, they're deciding to start a conversation they're all watching this birth. And so in particular, that call just so intrigues me because whales, the orca are, are really all about synchrony. They breathe together. They surface together uh, in, in remarkable unison. Now, and, I know you're not fluent in whale, but could you give us an approximation of, of what that <laughs> sounds like? <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like this. It goes, just like that. So the call has two parts. It has the, and it has a, and they mess around with that. And it has a little suffix as well. Sometimes there's a little on the end of it. Um, I came across some of my old notes the other day, and I actually used to be able to write killer whale in that, I had given a letter and a number to every single sound and I could just transcribe it as they talked uh, because orca are kindly a, a slow speaker as opposed to dolphins, which are just way Chad too loud. Oh, they're so chatty. <laughs> they are. And they talk over each other. And... It's like David and I sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So I hope to do that. And the other thing I'm doing is um have an enormous garden and providing food to the local school and feeding my neighbors and just all the angst of climate change and, and all these things that are out of my control. It, it is very healing to go into a garden and, and grow food and look at the plants and figure out what they want. And then they're so generous when you give them what they need. And Alexandra, David and I want to thank you so much for your wisdom, your dedication to orcas and to the salmon and really helping us understand the impacts of the salmon farming. And we have some decisions as a community to make on that. So thank you for being part of our Rising Tide Ocean podcast and enjoy your garden. Enjoy the, the beautiful life you have in your area. And thank you so much for being part of this. Thank you very much for this opportunity and 
People, of course, can help by simply not buying Farm Simon. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helvarg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Curla. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.